Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, what's up, Vanguard Bible Church and anybody else who might be joining us? Uh, Pastor Kerry here, bringing you another home Bible study video during this uh, COVID-19 shutdown. Doesn't it seem like there's been an uptick in controversy in our country this year? I mean, there's been budget battles between the Democrats and Republicans in Congress. There's There's been the president uh, arguing with local government leaders uh, about protest and as well as various tribes arguing over how much or how little racism is still a problem in our culture. The dictionary defines controversy as a prolonged, heated debate or disagreement. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus actually created quite a bit of controversy during his earthly ministry. And we're going to take a look at a couple of controversies he created in today's text and learn what Jesus thought was worth fighting for. And before we dive in, let's ask the Lord to help us understand and apply his word in prayer. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Would you please... Help us to set aside distractions and burdens that we're carrying right now so that we can give our full attention to you. And Lord, would you help us, just as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, would you help us to accurately interpret the scriptures and apply them to our lives so that we can think accurately about you? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last week, we looked at, in chapter 1, the last couple of weeks actually, in chapter 1, we saw Jesus demonstrating his authority over various facets of our lives. Today, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2, as we're going to continue to see Jesus demonstrate authority over other areas of our lives as well. Uh, We're going to continue this series that I'm calling uh, The Obedient Servant in the Gospel of Mark. Now, in in chapter 1, we were introduced to the types of authority that Jesus exercises. Like, for example, we saw him teach the scriptures with authority. We saw him cast out demons with authority. And we saw him heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law, which means he has authority over physical ailments. Now, in chapter 2, the Lord is going to continue proving he is the Son of God by expanding his authority into some areas previously held by Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, form a unit in which Jesus creates four controversies. Now, because of the amount of content in this unit or section, I've decided to break this message into two parts. Uh, I just wasn't confident I could squeeze it all in uh, to one video. And so here's part one today, and Lord willing, I'll do part two next week. 
Now, having said that, if you would look at Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And it's, it's in this first section, Mark 2, actually verses 1 through 12. We're going to see the setup in the first five verses. And then in verses 6 through 12, we're going to see the controversy. Follow along with me as I read. And he returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came in, bringing to him a paralytic carrying, carried by four men. Excuse me. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, let's stop right there. Here's the first point on your outline, and I hope you downloaded it off our website. There's a PDF on our website with a worksheet outline so that you can follow along with me. Here's number one, and it's this. Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. Now, notice when it says he, when he returned home to Capernaum, that is, you might remember the place where he kind of set up his headquarters. That was Peter's hometown. And, and at this season in his ministry, Jesus was operating out of Peter's home as kind of headquarters. Now, when it says in verse 5 that Jesus saw their faith, a common theme in the Gospels was Jesus' desire to reward faith. And if you'll notice the plural pronoun there in verse 5, it tells us that Jesus was rewarding the faith of this entire group of men who fought to get an audience with him. Next, uh, notice it says in verse 5 that he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, although it's not crystal clear, it seems that there was a connection between this man's handicap and a pattern of sin in his life. The word that Mark uses here for forgiven means to, to let go of something or to give up a debt or to, to, to let go of a debt. If we were to take all the verses in the New Testament on forgiveness, put them in a bowl and mix them up together and see what comes out, we would find that forgiveness is a decision to release a repentant person from the moral liability of their sin and a commitment to be reconciled to them. And this is, in essence, what Jesus does for us in the gospel. Now, this raises an interesting and popular question. Is all sickness caused by sin? The short answer to this question is all sickness is either directly or indirectly related to sin. But here's a, here's a little more of a breakdown on how the Bible answers this question. So this would be A, B, C, and D on your, on your outline. And the, and the first letter, A, is this. The first thing the Bible tells us about sickness and sin. And that is, all sickness is a result of the fall. All sickness is a result of the fall. In Genesis 2, the first man and woman enjoyed a sinless, eternal life with each other and uninterrupted fellowship with God. However, when they disobeyed God in Genesis 3 by eating from the forbidden tree in the midst of the garden, they were banned from God's presence 
and given the death penalty for their sin. Among the many consequences that came with this was a life on earth that would include things like birth defects, miscarriages, handicaps, and numerous other health problems within bodies that decay or decline with age. So in general, all sickness is our fault, not God's, because we're the ones who chose disobedience over Him. Here's the second thing the Bible says about sickness and sin. Let it be, all sickness can be used to glorify God. All sickness can be used to glorify God. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples encountered a man who had been blind since birth. This prompted the disciples to ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, neither. Instead, the man was afflicted from birth so that, according to Jesus, the works of God might be displayed in him. So, although Jesus healed that man of his blindness, I think he was saying we can glorify God with our ailments regardless of whether we are healed or not. Next, here's letter C. Some sickness is caused by Satan or his demons. Some sickness is caused by Satan or his demons. In Matthew 17, a father brought his son who suffered from seizures to Jesus and pleaded with Jesus to heal him. Matthew tells us the boy's illness was caused by a demon, which Jesus removed so the boy could be healed. In Luke 13, Luke recounts an encounter Jesus had with a woman who had been bent over for 18 years due to an evil spirit. After healing her, the Lord confirms that it was Satan who had bound this woman for 18 years. And next... Here's the fourth thing that the Bible says about sickness and sin. Letter D. Some sickness is caused by unrepentant sin. In James chapter 5, the apostle instructs those who suffer from chronic illnesses to call for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and to pray for their healing. James also says that if the sick person has committed sins, they should confess them so they can be forgiven. The ailment could be indirectly related to a specific sin the Lord wants to address in your life. For example, the Lord might afflict a workaholic with a broken leg in order to teach them to slow down and not idolize work. Or the affliction could be directly related to sin. For example, smokers who are mastered by nicotine get emphysema. Alcoholics get cirrhosis. And those who overeat, which the Bible calls the sin of gluttony, can develop diabetes. Now let's pause the video here uh, for a moment. I'd like you to talk about this discussion question. Why do you think the Lord would allow some sickness, not all, but some, some sickness to be directly caused by specific sins we've committed? Talk about that for a moment, and I'll be right back. Well, a couple of reasons that come to my mind regarding this question are uh, the Lord, first of all, He may want to remind us, most likely wants to remind us that there are consequences for sin so that we don't continue to do that sin. 
And another reason he might do so is to humble us and make us more dependent on him. Now, you might be wondering, why was Jesus forgiving this man in Mark 2 so controversial? I mean, because most of us have heard the gospel for a long time. We know that Jesus forgives sin. However, the Jews didn't grow up hearing that. Uh, follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 2, verses 6 to 12, and we'll see why this is so controversial. So, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so the more important issue here in verses 1 through 12 is not Jesus' ability to heal the lame, but rather his claim that he could forgive sins. We can see this in the number of verses devoted to this issue and the response of the scribes. Notice, if you would, look in your Bible at verse uh, 7. It says, now, uh, some of the scribes were sitting there. Some translations render this some teachers of the law. These were professional interpreters of the Old Testament Jewish law who had emphasized their own traditions in addition to the law. And they resented Jesus's new interpretation of the law, and they did not like the fact that Jesus rejected their traditions. And you can see that in verse 7, where they're saying in their hearts, they're thinking in their hearts, that he is blaspheming, meaning, you know, he's taking the Lord's name in vain. He's committing a serious sin here. The reason Jesus' declaration of forgiveness offended the scribes is that they had grown up hearing only God could forgive sins. There also were no Old Testament references about the Messiah who was to come forgiving sins. I mean, there are a lot of prophecies that talk about the Messiah doing many other things, but there were none that talked about him forgiving sins. Even Jewish priests were not allowed to pronounce or promise the forgiveness of sins. Thus, by forgiving the paralytic's sins, Jesus was once again claiming to be God. And that was huge. Notice it says in verse 8 that uh, he perceived in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves. This is, this is huge. Notice back in verse 6 as well that it says the scribes were questioning in their hearts. This is, this is a huge irony, and I don't want you to miss this, because 
Jesus proved he was God by reading in their minds that they were offended by his claim to be God. Isn't that, you, you, do you see that? We can then see in verse 12 how this healing and the granting of forgiveness once again left Jesus' audience dumbfounded. Well, I think there's some encouragement that we can glean from this passage during this difficult year of 2020. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, uh, there is some rich encouragement here during one of the darkest years we've seen in recent history. If you've sincerely repented of your sins and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you can take comfort in the fact that no matter how bad things get down here on earth this year, nothing has changed in heaven. Jesus has paid your debt to God in full so that you don't have to spend the rest of your life paying off a debt you never could like you're some indentured servant. And if the Lord doesn't answer your prayers for physical healing, you can still rejoice that he's taking care of your greatest need. And that is to have your sins forgiven so you can be reconciled with God. And that reconciliation means you can look forward to living pain-free in the Lord's presence for eternity. And that's good news. Let's look at the second controversy in this chapter, and it's in chapter 2, Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. Follow along with me, if you would, while I read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him and was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's uh, number two on your outline, the second controversy that Jesus created in the second declaration he was making. Jesus championed evangelistic relationships with unbelievers. That's number two. He championed evangelistic relationships with unbelievers. You'll notice in verse 14, it says that he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, you might remember me mentioning uh, back in chapter 1 that Capernaum, which is where Jesus was ministering, Capernaum sat on a major trade route that connected Damascus in the north to several Mediterranean ports in the south. The Roman Empire would place tax booths along such routes to collect tariffs and sales taxes on products that were flowing through the region on that trade route, on that highway. Tax collectors who were hired by the Roman Empire were wealthy and often corrupt because they would take extra off the top for themselves. Levi, who is later named Matthew, was both a Jew 
and a tax collector. Thus, the Jews would have seen him as a traitor going to work for the empire, the superpower who was occupying them. And after Levi chose to leave his old career behind to follow Jesus, he also chose to host a dinner at his home to introduce some of his unbelieving friends and former co-workers to Jesus. We see that in these verses here. Now, notice in verse 16, uh, it talks about the Pharisees being present at this party. The Pharisees were the largest, most influential religious party in Jesus's day. They criticized Jesus because the sinners at the meal were people who were not schooled, nor did they follow the Old Testament law. Sharing a meal back in these days was an expression of trust and fellowship. According to the Pharisees, devout Jews, especially rabbis like Jesus, were supposed to maintain a safe distance from unbelievers in order to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. Thus, in their eyes, Jesus was not being enough of a separatist. Now, let's pause the video and talk about this two-part discussion question. Why would Jesus not want his followers to cut off all interaction with unbelievers? And I'd also like you to talk about why would he not want us spending too much time with them either? Discuss that for a moment and I'll be right back. Well, good work. I'm sure you had some great discussion, some great thoughts there. There's a balance or a middle ground that needs to be maintained on this issue that I'll, I'll explain further in one of our applications. It is, a, it is a commonly debated issue in the evangelical world. Now, what did Jesus mean, though, in verse 17 when he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Interestingly, this is actually a proverb the Pharisees would have been familiar with, and it's also a veiled shot across the bow at them. The Lord's point was that even though everybody is a sinner, there are some who won't admit it because they are self-righteous. Such people would see no need to repent and follow Jesus in order to be saved. On the other hand, there are those who know they are sinners, and thus they are open to receiving Jesus' gospel message. And this is why he ate with sinners. Now, we don't see many separatist Christians in America these days. Instead, I think too many professing believers have swung the pendulum to the opposite extreme by being too much in the world. There are a handful of Bible verses that have wisely balanced this tension in order to honor the Lord with this issue, and we need to know these verses. So, so here's one, for example. In Romans 10, uh, Paul told the Romans that unbelievers cannot get saved if there is no one who will share the message of the gospel with them. That's in Romans 10, verses 14 to 15. On the other hand, he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. 
bad company ruins good morals. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. What he meant here is that it is impossible to spend a lot of time with unbelievers and not be influenced by their anti-God thinking and lifestyle. So there has to be a balance. There has to be care. We've got to share the gospel with unbelievers, Romans 10, 14 to 15, but we need to also be careful that they don't influence us, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Well, this brings us to one of our applications. Number one, the first application I have for you, be in the world, but not of the world. This popular Christian cliche comes from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. It's there that Jesus says his followers are not of the world, just as he was not of the world. And we are sent into the world just as he was sent into the world. You can hear the balance that I mentioned earlier in Jesus' prayer. In other words, engage with unbelievers in this fallen world, but don't be like them. I think the principle could be stated like this. Spend just enough time with unbelievers so that you can share the gospel with them, but not so much time that they influence you instead of you influencing them. Any professing believer who spends more time with unbelievers or calls an unbeliever their best friend is driving off a dangerous cliff. On the other hand, any believer who doesn't have any unbelieving friends that they're praying for or witnessing to needs to step out of the comfort zone of Christian fellowship a little bit more. Now, if the Lord has placed you in a job where you work with unbelievers, please remember that one of the main reasons he puts you there is to pray for their salvation and to share the gospel with them. Okay, here's the second application. I want to really encourage you to think biblically about sickness and suffering. If you don't do this, you will become deeply disappointed with God. Simply put, it is not God's will to remove all the ailments and trials that we have on this side of eternity. Doing so would nullify the consequences of the fall and create a pseudo-heaven on earth. Now, here's a, a, a few quick reasons why we must endure sickness and suffering here on earth. First, it is the life we have reaped by rebelling against God. Secondly, the Lord chooses instead to use sickness and suffering to make us more like Christ. And thirdly, He wants to use our joy and perseverance while suffering to strengthen our witness for Christ. So... I would venture to guess that most of us don't like controversy and would rather avoid it at all costs. However, Jesus shows us that some controversies are worth creating, especially those that have to do with who he is and what he wrote in his word. Now, before I sign off, there's two books I want to recommend for you on the topics that we discussed in this video. If you're struggling with sickness and suffering, I want to suggest that you order a copy of Randy Alcorn's devotional book called 90 Days of God's Goodness. This, this book helped me when I was going through a difficult season in my life. And if you're wrestling with uh, what your relationship with the world should look like, I want to recommend that you pick up a copy of Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness. This also is a great book.
Well, our encouragement verse for this week that I want to encourage you to write down, memorize, post it on your bathroom mirror or take it in the car with you is from 2 Corinthians 4.16. This is where Paul says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. When Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, he was saying that although our bodies may be sick, broken down, and getting older, those who walk with the Lord are having their hearts prepared for heaven. Well, thanks again for tuning in. I'm hoping and praying that this content is helpful to you. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with someone or sharing it on social media. Until then, I'll see you again soon. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.